The Daily 202's Big Idea is sponsored by Delta Airlines, the commercial airline the U.S. military trusts to perform maintenance on its aircraft. Learn more at deltatakingaction.com. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Thursday, November 1st. In today's news, President Trump says he might end up sending 15,000 troops to the border. Several states report record-shattering early vote totals, and the nature of hate crimes is evolving. But first, the big idea. History nerds are geeking out this morning. The National Archives on Wednesday night revealed one of the last great secrets of the Watergate investigation— It's the backbone of a long-sealed report used by Special Prosecutor Leon Jaworski to send evidence to Congress in the legal case against Richard Nixon. It's a much more complicated process than you might assume if you're not a lawyer, because the proceedings of a grand jury are supposed to stay secret. The release of the referral, which was delivered in 1974 as impeachment proceedings were being weighed, came after a former member of Nixon's defense team and three prominent legal analysts filed separate lawsuits seeking for it to be unsealed after more than four decades of being held back under those grand jury secrecy rules. The legal analysts argued that the report could offer a precedent and guide for special counsel Bob Mueller as he addresses the present-day challenge on whether, and if so, how, to make public the findings of his investigation into Russia's interference in the 2016 election, and whether President Trump tried to obstruct justice in shutting down that investigation. Jaworski faced a problem similar to the one that may soon confront Mueller. He had relevant evidence, but not, Jaworski concluded, the constitutional authority to indict a sitting president. Mueller has telegraphed that he too does not believe he has the authority to indict Trump. Meanwhile, Congress had the authority to impeach Nixon, but not the evidence to justify doing so. In the end, the House Judiciary Committee sought access to evidence gathered by the prosecutors. So the grand jury adopted what's called the roadmap, and a federal judge authorized it being transmitted to House investigators under seal so they could understand Nixon's culpability. The legal specialists who sued to get this document released said they did so because they think that it's a much better example to follow than Ken Starr's report before Bill Clinton's impeachment. The notorious 453-page Starr report, written in 1998, deepened partisan divisions with its graphic detail and legal conclusions about Clinton's affair with Monica Lewinsky. By contrast, the reputation of Jaworski's report has fared far better, even as its bare bones have remained a mystery. As Jaworski explained in his 1976 memoir, there were no comments, no interpretations, and not a word or phrase of an accusatory nature. The roadmap was simply a series of guideposts if the House wished to follow them. My colleague Spencer Sue, who burned the midnight oil going through the roadmap, says it consists of a two-page summary followed by 53 numbered statements supported by 97 documents, including interviews and tapes that the prosecutor had obtained of Nixon in the Oval Office. The modern-day successor of the judge who released the roadmap in the 1970s, Chief Judge Beryl Howell of the U.S. District Court for D.C., ordered the release of this report on October 11th with only limited redactions. Not coincidentally, Howell is also overseeing the grand jury that Mueller has convened to hear evidence, 
and as chief judge, he would decide any similar request made to release that grand jury material. Back in July 1974, the House Judiciary Committee recommended that Nixon be impeached, but he resigned before that recommendation moved ahead. Two of the legal specialists who sued to get the roadmap released, Jack Goldsmith and Ben Wittes, said this morning after they got a chance to peruse it that they're struck by how much the roadmap was crafted not as a prosecutor's report, but as a straightforward accounting of the evidence. They wrote on their popular national security blog, Lawfare, that the roadmap is so powerful partly because it's so by the book. Kind of like Bob Mueller. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, Trump says he may send up to 15,000 troops to the southern border in response to the migrant caravans. It seems like a pretty transparent effort to fire up his base voters before the midterms, more than to respond to any kind of real national security challenge. The U.S. has not massed this many troops at the southern border since the Mexican Revolution spilled over into Texas a century ago. If the deployment does reach 15,000 troops, it would be roughly equivalent to the size of the U.S. military presence in Afghanistan and three times the size of our presence in Iraq. Already, the deployment is believed to be the largest of its kind in more than a century. Trump said at a Florida rally last night that Republican congressional majorities next year would allow him to enact his immigration agenda, including ending birthright citizenship, a subject he spoke at length about. He also suggested that Border Patrol agents might begin imprisoning migrants seeking asylum, which would violate international law. The president's singular focus on immigration in the home stretch has scrambled many campaign strategies in the final days before Tuesday. A bunch of House Republicans in suburban districts in places like Miami, Denver, and Minneapolis are distancing themselves from the president's nativist rhetoric. But Senate Democrats in red states where Trump's popular, like Indiana, Missouri, and North Dakota, are saying they back up Trump on sending troops to the border and trying to block the caravan from coming in. It's a surreal dynamic to watch. All the while, Trump continues to lay the groundwork to blame congressional Republicans if the GOP loses the House, which seems likelier than not at this point. Yesterday, he lashed out at House Speaker Paul Ryan on Twitter. Ryan, who's retiring, said Trump can't end birthright citizenship with an executive order like he wants to do. It's frankly a statement of fact. But Trump said that Ryan should keep his mouth shut and focus on what he's good at and not talking about immigration law. Number two, early and absentee voting numbers in at least 17 states have already surpassed the total number of such ballots cast in 2014, the last midterm election. In some cases, early and absentee vote totals are on track to double since four years ago. The numbers are so high in some states that early voting may exceed total vote counts, including election day tallies from four years ago. The heightened participation reflects in part a surge of interest among Democrats. But data from several battleground states with marquee Senate and governor's races show Republicans are also very engaged, suggesting that a lot of the hardest fought races in the country will be closer than surveys are predicting. And we're seeing a lot of intensity on both sides. A new round of Fox News polls published last night shows that the Senate races in Indiana, Arizona, and Missouri remain toss-ups, while Republicans have pulled ahead in North Dakota and Tennessee. And in Wisconsin, a Marquette University Law School poll, considered the gold standard in the Badger State, finds that the governor's race between Republican Scott Walker and his Democratic challenger Tony Evers to be tied, literally a dead heat. They polled 1,000 people, and an identical number of respondents said they supported the Republican as supported the Democrat. 
If you needed another reminder, every vote counts. Number three, Robert Bowers, the suspect in the Tree of Life synagogue shooting, was charged in a 44-count indictment accusing him of federal hate crimes. The charges carry a possible death sentence, and the Justice Department has said that federal prosecutors in Pittsburgh have initiated the process to seek capital punishment. In a new court filing, federal prosecutors also accuse mail bomb suspect Caesar Syok in Florida of committing a, quote, domestic terrorist attack. They submitted evidence to show that he did web searches over the last several months to try finding the home addresses of his 100 alleged targets. Over the past several decades, academic researchers have charted how hate crimes, which have been on the rise overall, have increasingly transformed from sadistic quests to violence used as an angry defense against rapid social change. The perpetrators of these kinds of hate crimes are mostly white men who hold the belief that they're protecting their culture, race, and an endangered way of life that is historically, and in their view, rightly, placed them at the top. Some belong to white supremacist groups, but many do not. And that's The Daily 202 for Thursday, November 1st. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Thank you.